Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Riomar. Probably it's the middle of summer. You might need to refresh your look. I know some of the country, you see people, at least all the golf courses are open now, so you're around the club. Uh, and one of the best pieces that I've picked up this year are my Riomar shoes. So these shoes are really versatile shoes. You can wear them in any kind of format. They are slip-ons. I mean, they have a lot of different styles, actually. They have chuckas, They have uh, your loafers, your your watermans, your your drivers. And, you know, they are very versatile shoes. They You can dress them up, um, wear them with a jacket or khakis, or dress them down. A couple key features about these shoes, as opposed to your kind of standard deck shoes, uh, they are water-resistant. They also are smell-resistant, which is a big one for, for boat shoes. I mean, I've had so many boat shoes that have just stunk after a couple months uh, of wearing them in the summer. These have held up great. They still don't smell. And uh, they make it really easy for you. They Free returns, uh, easy return system, and they're good-looking good shoes. Uh, they also have uh, women's shoes. So those are also available. And uh, we've got a great promo code for you. The promo code is TFE, and you can purchase these shoes at RioMarshoes.com. They have been a great sponsor for us and uh, supported both this and the Shotgun Start. So get those shoes over at RioMarshoes.com and use the promo code TFE for 15% off your entire purchase. All right, here's another edition of the Yoke with Doke. This is episode 23. In this episode, we talk a ton about Tom's new book, Getting to 18. Uh, it just came out a couple weeks ago. It is available for purchase. It is a small batch. He's doing 1,500 uh, limited release books that are all signed by him. And you can purchase this book at dokegolf.com. But this conversation centers around the book, which is about how he routed all of his first 18 golf courses, his first 18 designs. And we are going to talk extensively about the book and uh, his designs of Sheep Ranch and Pacific Dunes, as well as how he met Bill Coor, which is kind of a cool story in this episode. We are, uh, all these episodes kind of blend together. We just did a batch of recording. We did about three hours of them. So we are going to release these on successive days. So you will have a new Yoke with Doke in your feed the next two days, if you're listening to this the day that it's released. Otherwise, you'll be able to get them all right in succession in the feed. So without further ado, here is Tom Doak. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Tom, new book. Tell us about getting to 18. Well, it's a very big book. And it's something that I've been working on for a long time. I, start, I started working on it like three years ago. Uh, one of my former interns and then associates, Sarah Mass, who used to run my office for a few years, um, she teaches school now. but So she's got time off in the summers. And she's 
she'd been bugging me for a while about working on this in her spare time. And I said, all right, yeah, let's get into the, yeah, we can do that. So, um, you know, for a long time, I've thought that there's, there were two books that I wanted to write that really, you know, there's a lot of literature about golf course architecture, but these two subjects haven't been covered very well. One is um, an architect explaining what he did on a golf course and all the decisions that he made from start to finish, like from the routing, from meeting the client and seeing the property, the routing to the, to the decisions that you make during construction to how it plays when it's done. Um, you know, there have been a couple of attempts at that. You know, there was a book by John Strawn about an Art Hills course in Florida that was, you know, it was a saga of a development, <laughs> housing development golf course. That's not what I'm interested in doing, you know, all the politics of that. Um, and then the, and, you know, I've got, I've had that book half done for years. I started writing a book about Pacific Dunes right after we built it 20 years ago. And I will go back and finish that at some point, probably soon. Um, but then the other book is about routing a golf course and just how do you, you know, where do you start and what do you do? And um, it hasn't been covered very much, you know, like there's a chapter in Thomas's book, but it's all really vague, you know. And anytime you talk about something like that, it's all about the piece of land that you're working with and what you're seeing in it. So trying to talk about it in general terms, you just come up with a bunch of rules for golf courses that are counterproductive, like, oh, the par three should go in every direction. And, and you know, the ideal way to route a golf course. But when you get a, an actual piece of land to work with, you find that those things don't all fit together very well. And if you're really trying to fit it to the topography, you have to start throwing those things out to make a good golf course fit. Um, so I wanted to talk about it, you know, how it really works on a real piece of ground instead of what are the ideal, what's the ideal scenario. Um, and, you know, in school, although nobody covers golf course riding in school, but in school, when, you tr when they try to teach you about something like that, you look at case studies. So this is a routing, this is how to route a golf course, basically the way I learned it from the very first time I looked at a map with Pete Dye on, you know, how did he route this golf course that he was working on, which turned out to be the honors course in Tennessee, to you know, starting high point and trying to figure it out for myself all the way through it ends with St. Andrew's Beach because that was the 18th golf course I'd done. Um, you know, it's sort of a progression of you get, you know, you certainly get better as you go. You also, every situation is a little bit different. And, you know, high point, my first golf course was pretty much just a golf course, although there was some extra land and you had to kind of think about, well, what might they do with that extra land? I can't just like leave a big hole in the center of it with, you know, with no, that they could never use for anything. That wouldn't make much sense. So, you know, from that to working on a piece of ground that was just dead flat and trying to figure out what to do with it to working on a project that was going to have a huge development around it and trying to allow for that and wrestling with the land planners over where the golf holes could go. 
you know, every project is different. And until you've done 10 of them or 20 of them, it's hard to be really good at it. And that's, you know, one of the problems today is most architects don't get a chance to do that many. You know, you, you learn from practice and nobody gets much practice anymore because there's not a lot of projects being built. Yeah, and it's something you said that stuck with me in an earlier conversation we had was everybody, when you look at, an, you know, if I, we go out and walk Crystal Downs, you'd say, well, I think they were thinking that they were routing it because of this, but I have really no clue unless, and, and this is a great opportunity for future generations to be like, if they go out and they play you know, Pacific Dunes, they can read and be like, oh, this is why he did this. And actually, no, this was the intention of the routing and why it's routed this way. Yes. And yeah. So a little of this, too, is to protect my own work a little bit. So people aren't speculating about why I did something in 50 years from now when when somebody's an expert at restoring my golf courses, they aren't just pulling some concept out of thin air that I didn't believe at all because they think they saw something at barn boogle that must be the way i was thinking when i built high point 20 years before <laughs> i never thought about that but yeah like the idea of having there being a, a tom doak restoration specialist in 60 years or <laughs> yeah it, i do think about it because i do i do that kind of work sometimes and Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the things about the restoration business that really bothers me is that, you know, there's a Donald Ross expert or a Perry Maxwell expert or whoever, and that, you know, to sell what they're doing, they they oversimplify what that guy did. I mean, I really believe that any great architect, with the exception of Seth Rayner, any great architect was trying to do, you know, he wasn't trying to do the same thing over and over again. They wanted their work to be different somehow. And they, they were responding to a situation. And, you know, and yet when you hear somebody talk about restoration, it's like Donald Ross only built bunkers a certain way. And Donald Ross didn't put bunkers behind a green. And, I, you know, he built 600 golf courses. Of course he did that some of the time. And you can't just, you know, you should be looking at the, you know, you should be looking at the aerial photo from when it was built before you say something like that. Because that might be true of a golf course that he built 15 years earlier in some other state, but it's not necessarily true for the golf course that you're working on. Yeah, it, it's something that makes me think about that is like the four Tillinghast courses in uh, Westchester County right next to each other, uh, Wingfoot West, East, Fenway, and Quaker Ridge. They're there are no like steadfast like this is they're all unique in their own way they all sit on different types of topography and they all have you know different quirks and and characteristics to them they aren't by any means like you know there aren't steadfast rules from one to the other right and those those were all built in a really tight window together too you know it's kind of amazing that he did vary them as much as he did you know, a lot of that comes from the ground. But then I look at something, you know, the the two Tillinghouse courses that we've consulted on, well, we've done, we've done more than two. Um, but two of them are the first, like the first two big projects that he did, Somerset Hills and San Francisco Golf Club. 
and you know we've we've we haven't done work at Shawnee. We've looked at Restore and that too. So those are all his really early courses. So there's several years before Wingfoot. And he did very different things. I mean, Somerset Hills has a whole bunch of like chocolate drop mounds around green sites and, and really severe greens, like way more severe than anything at Wingfoot or Quaker Ridge. And yeah, he probably changed his mind somewhere after that or or even just realize that hey you know i can do that kind of wild stuff if it's the only thing i'm working on and i'm there all the time but if i'm going to be building a lot of golf courses at the same time i got to be careful i got to be a little more conservative or something will slip through the cracks and not work very well <laughs> yeah i imagine when you have to redo stuff that's like the worst work you know, when you when if you're not careful and something's you know, screwed up, and the somebody's like, "Hey, you got to come back and soften this." It's just it's like the I imagine like what I like have to you know I think about it sometimes like when I have to redo something that I already did, I'm always just muttering to myself the whole time. Right, and the most important part of that for me is the second version is generally not as good as the first one because you're not in the, you know you're not in a good mental place to do the work at that point. You're like damn it, we messed up. Okay, now I got to fix this. What do I have to do to appease whoever is not happy with it? Instead of, you know, working in the flow of building the golf course in the first place, when you're feeling creative and doing things that you, you know, doing things because you want to do. Something you touched on earlier is the, the way that different projects connect together over time and you see things that remind you of old projects and that it was I, I thought it was really cool how the beginning of the book in high point you're talking about the the four the 40 acres the sandy 40 acres and then and st andrews beach there's a, a a part of that property that reminds you of that I imagine that just happens, and that's what you're talking about with the experience factor, but it just happens more and more where you see things and it reminds you of, of different places you've worked on or, or seen. It does. You know, some of it's just recognizing the same situation when it comes up again. And sometimes it's like you've got a hole that you're really trying to make work somewhere and it just doesn't work. And, you know, if you're smart, you just give that idea up and wait because three years down the road, there will be the right place for it. Yeah. And, and t uh, tying to that, Sally Golf asked, uh, what's the hardest routing decision you've ever made? The hardest routing decision I've ever made. Hmm. Well, one of the ones that I put in the book, there was a hole in our routing for Cape Kidnappers that if you look at the the map of what we were going to build, it's on there. And it was a par three that was pretty much just hanging off the cliffs below where the 13th hole is now. So the T was similar to where the 13th was, but even more out on the cliff. But the green was like 80 or 100 feet lower in this little, on this little shelf hanging down there before it falls off the world. And... You know, when we started looking at that project, there was that, you know, there was that famous old calendar, Great Golf Holes of New Zealand. And of course, everybody talks about that with Cape Kidnappers, that, oh, yeah, this is just like that calendar. But it's not. You know, Cape Kidnappers generally is a pretty conservative routing. We get close to the edge. 
it's not really that possible to play right along the edge very many places there because of the way the topography works. But, you know, it's all on a relatively gentle piece of ground to walk. And it's not, there's not many just do or die shots other than the 15th hole playing out on the one finger with trouble to both sides. But, but we had a hole in the routing, the original 13th, that was really severe. Like, you know, scary to even stand on the tee and look at. And we really thought we were going to build it. Um, and then as we started, we, we started building the front nine holes first. So we had a lot of time to think about that hole. And the more we thought about it, the more hesitant we were, you know, like, how are we going to get people down there and back? You can't let them drive a golf cart down there. If the brakes go, it'll just go off the edge and somebody will die. Um, you know, so are we going to like build a funicular down there and back up? Or are we going to like get somebody to shuttle people down there or, or what, how do you get in and out? You know, you could walk down, but it was like a pretty severe hike coming back out to get to the next tee if you did it. Um, it was just barely big enough for a green and a little place to miss long and right. Um, and then the kicker, the, the, the thing that absolutely stopped us from doing it, when, which I didn't mention in the book directly, there were a couple little mounds down there by the green. And we got concerned that they might be like archaeological stuff going on because nobody really surveyed that stuff for Cape Kidnappers. But, but a lot of the natives there did things right along the coast. In fact, Cape Kidnappers is named because they kidnapped <laughs> Captain Cook's uh, translator from his, you know, he, he sent the, he sent the translator and one of his guys ashore to talk to the natives and the natives like saw this Tahitian guy that was his translator and figured that he was captured and they, they captured him back and freed him. So Cook had to like send another patrol to get his translator back. And that's what, that's how it got the name Cape Kidnappers. He named it. But we were concerned, you know, if we dig into something there and there's some archaeology, there's some archaeology there that shuts the whole thing down. <laughs> and, you know, between that and all the logistical stuff, it's like, no, let's not take this chance. You know, we're, and then we had to scramble a little bit, finding, finding room to build the 13th hole now the way it is was, you know, we felt like it was really kind of jamming it in there. I mean, it's a 130 yard par three and there's, there's just the tee is right behind the 12th green and there's just not much space. And we were worried whether that hole would fit in. It turns out that's one of people's favorite holes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Cape kidnapper is a good example of where, you know, you had a lot of different iterations of your routing and there were different concerns with the client wanting returning nines and, and, and just, I was, and then the par three where you, you shifted it and just the number of different revisions that went into the routing. And, and it seemed to me that through the book, as the book progressed, it seemed like every routing got a little bit more intricate and more and more edits from early on, because it just seemed like it got more and more complex and there was more and more thought into each routing. Is it, do you feel like that was the case when you were writing it? Not necessarily. I mean, it kind of comes and goes in waves. You know, some of it's the client and whether the client is giving you good feedback on what they want and and what they like and don't like really helps a ton. Um, sometimes it's, you know, Cape Kidnappers, 
I mean, in theory, we had 5,000 acres to build a golf course. In, fa- in, in truth, not nearly that because most of it's so severe you can't use it. But, but there were a lot of, you know, there's, there was a lot more ground to consider and, and a lot more decisions that you could make. You know, it's much different to work with a piece of ground like that than when you've got 150 acres and it's a rectangle and, okay, route me a golf course in that little box right there. Is, a, is an entirely different thing, um, but you know, basically, the more the more good features you have to work with, the harder it is. In some ways, I mean, you know, some in some ways it's easy because there's just there's great things just laying there, but on the other hand, you've got so many factors to consider instead of just trying not to play into the sun at the start and finish and trying to get the par threes to go in different directions. Yeah, the the smaller sites you talk is like when you're trying to fit it in. It's while it's challenging, it's a more almost more simple than when you have limitless options because then you have to make a lot of decisions. Yes. Um. So, Jay Spur, Spurgeon uh, asks among among your best sites you have built on or seen, are there any common characteristics besides sand? Well, they're not all sandy. I mean. Cape Kidnappers is not sandy. Uh, Rock Creek and Stone Eagle that are not in this book, but in the other book will be in one someday, I hope, uh, are not sandy. So, you know, sand makes it way easier to build things. It doesn't make it any easier to route a golf course necessarily. The only thing it does make it easier is you do have more options because you can build a green in a valley and not worry about drainage problems. I mean... A lot of Bill Coors' coolest green sites are like he he puts a he sites a green in kind of the head of a valley and just puts a little fill in there and builds it up and and it's you know it's a beautiful setting it just feels like a, you're hitting into a little glove almost. Eight at Sandhills is like that. Um, four or fifteen at Abandoned Trails is like that. And if that's on clay, that's really hard to do because all this stuff from both sides is coming down onto the green, and the only way you could do it is if you build bunkers all around to you know cut off that drainage and essentially not have anything drain into the green using the bunkers to catch the water and drain, drain. well ideally you're using you're you're deflecting the water at the t- at the high side of the bunker on the back and getting it to go around the green because otherwise you're going to contaminate the bunkers yeah. <laughs> but at least you won't at least you wouldn't contaminate the greens mix that way you know, but you know when you're building, when you're putting nice, expensive greens mix on clay, you really don't want anything surface draining onto it. You know, superintendents will tell you that's not a good idea anyway. You know, it's different kinds of grasses; they use different chemicals on them, so you don't want things washing from the outside onto the green. But you know, and landscape architecture will teach you don't you know get everything to drain away from the from the green itself. Um, but, you know, but you go look in the UK and half the holes you love, that's not true at all. <laughs> you know, there's there's pieces of the greens that's gathering from outside. And, you know, one of the things that's really cool about Bally Neal is there's so many holes that you, you know, you're playing off a slope on the outside of the green to feed it to a certain hole location. You can't do that on clay, or at least it's really hard to do it on clay. Because, 
you know, you could still have that feature outside, but you'd have to have something between there and the green to kind of stop the water from pouring onto the green. And that stops your golf ball from pouring onto the green the same way. That makes sense. It's, uh, what Michael Wolf asked, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made design while designing a golf course? That's one of the things I love most about the book is that you're, you've got some self-criticism in it where you say, this is a, something I would never do if I had a chance to redo it or, you know, different, different things. So that was something I appreciated about the book. Was... Yeah. So, well, there's two examples that come to mind from this book and, and I can't really think if there's anything I've done in the last 20 golf courses that compares. <laughs> Hopefully I'm learning my lessons and not doing the same thing again. Um, you know, and then there's a third general, the, you know, the first general thing is don't take the wrong job with a client that's going to be impossible or, or, or a piece of ground or an environmental constraint that's just, that there's no way around it. Cause then you're kind of handcuffed and there's only so much you can do. Um, you know, actual mistakes once I got the job and started building, um, one that there was one from high point which was kind of you know high point the 18th hole you know you had 17 holes with that were kind of linksy or heathland style golf no water in play at all and then the 18th hole was a double dog leg par five around a pond and you know the reason i did that well partly 30 years ago, I thought that would be a cool hole. Partly, there was this wetland in the middle of the site that if I didn't use for a golf hole, it was useless to the client. And if I put a golf hole through there, then he had 10 more acres to develop around it someday. So it just made sense, you know, instead of that just being a swamp that was off limits, it made sense to try to build a golf hole there. And and you know, and I didn't, and I didn't worry at the beginning that it would be kind of out of character from the rest of the golf course. But then, so I committed to doing that, and we'd actually we'd applied for the permit to do the work around the wetlands, and we hadn't heard back. And we started building the rest of the golf course, which there's a mistake. Don't start until you know you can do everything you want to do on the plan, and then. A month or so into construction, the guy from the Department of Natural Resources came out to, you know, mark the wetlands officially and tell us what we could and couldn't do. And he marked it pretty much where we anticipated that he would. And then he said, and yeah, you, there's a 25-foot buffer around that that you can't touch either that we had not anticipated. So that, you know, what was going to be kind of an S-shaped hole around these the wetland and the pond turned into like a z-shaped hole with a forced carry that hole reminded me of what became 18 at medina number one no not 18 17 17 yeah that's uh yeah 18's the part three got it. uh a little bit it was really bit. similar yeah not as long i mm -hmm. mean it was it was short enough that that a good player would have to lay up off the tee a little bit and could still go for the green and two, um, which was another flaw with it. Cause you know, we didn't, you know, 
we couldn't put the T back or you couldn't make the carry over the first part of the Z. And then if we didn't put the T all the way back, the way that the way it got flagged out, you, there was no place for the drive to kind of run out further down. Um, so, so it was really, you know, if, if I'd have had them flag the hole with the buffer and everything before we started, I probably wouldn't have tried to build a hole there at all. And instead I was stuck with trying to fix it and, you know, find a way for it to work for, you know, we're talking about us playing now, but for women, it was a horrible hole. I mean, it was just like, you have to decide how far back to put a tease so that quote unquote, all women can get close to the edge, which is, you know, it's hard to do for men, if not harder. And then it was a really severe carry for them anyway. So just not a very good golf hole. Um, you know, it could be a really heroic hole if you were just the right kind of player. But if you weren't just the right kind of player, it was a mess. So if only you could have just made it uh, a 19 hole course and turned it into a par three and a short par four, right? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, I suppose if you started from the, from the landing area, it would have been a good short par four. It was about probably about the best thing going for it. Um, so, so that was a mistake and, and I learned my lesson. Don't, you know, don't tr try not to, you know, when, when somebody sends me a map of a new piece of property, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I just want to start routing holes on it right away. <laughs> and I still do that. But don't think that you're working on a real routing until you know what the constraints are. Because something like that can radically change what the routing ought to be. And if you get too far down the line of thinking you can make something work in there, and then somebody tells you, no, you can't do that, you're really stuck. And you, you start having to give up things that you really wanted to do. You know, you fell in love with the hole after it, and now you can't get to there. That's a, re you know, that's a really hard thing. You know, I'm, I get excited about my work, and I get kind of emotional about it. So when something like that happens, I'm pissed off for a while. And it's hard to, like, regroup and get something good to, to come out of it. Um, and the best way is don't get too excited and don't get so far down the line that you're going to be pissed off. You have to give something up. It, it's funny. It, one of the progressions of the book is you can tell how you're, as your kind of career progressed and you became more and more well-known, the sites got drastically better because at one point, I think it was Riverfront, you were talking about how you weren't sure if you'd ever see a site without power lines yeah. <laughs> easement that came through. And it, it's really interesting. That progression was like the sites obviously got drastically better in your career. Yes. And I mean, I had some good sites early on too, but, but yes, I had a little more to choose from. And I started, I started getting on the radar of different clients was really what it was about. But more than that, I mean, I, I mean, Mike Kaiser will tell you that part of the reason his business model is what it was, is that, you know, he was reading those top hundred lists for golf magazine in the nineties and seeing all these great golf courses that were built on great pieces of land instead of just whatever piece of ground possible. 
and you know, and I was writing the articles that went with those, <laughs> and and in one of them, in like about 1995, I wrote that you know, if you look at these lists, no matter what architect you're talking about and how great they were, the courses of theirs that are on the list are generally the best sites they had to work with. You know, I mean, even Pete Dye, you know, Pete Dye would be maybe an exception to that rule for getting a swamp like the TPC at Sawgrass and winding up with the top 100 golf course. But even so, by far his best golf course and the one that he was most excited about was Teeth of the Dog, which had seven holes right on the Caribbean. So, you know, that resonated with Mr. Kaiser that, you know, it's not just the architect, it's the piece of ground you start with that that really matters for building something great. And it was really counterintuitive because when I'd worked for Mr. Dye, when I started in the business, prevailing wisdom was, you know, you can hire this guy to create a great golf course out of nothing. So why spend money on good land if he could do that? And, you know, I, I started from the very beginning I was really lucky to fall into High Point, which I thought was a beautiful piece of land for golf, notwithstanding that 18th hole. Um, and I, you know, I went for this kind of niche of, you know, being somebody to hire if you had a good piece of land. And a lot of people told me that was crazy. There's no good land left anymore. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, there's good land everywhere. Let's see. Uh, there's a- good land everywhere. Whether or not you can get permission to build on it and whether or not there's enough people around to make support a golf course, those are the hard parts. But there is good land everywhere. Something I found um, interesting in the book was how you talked about the impact that Pacific Dunes had on your career and kind of launching you up versus how Bill and uh, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw Sandhills hadn't had the similar, hadn't given them a superstardom bump at that point. And if I think I read that correctly, but do you think it's because Pacific Dunes was a public course? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that was in Sarah when she was editing me was like, you got to rewrite that because it sounds like you're saying Sandhills wasn't really that good. And I'm like, no, nobody's going to think I meant that. Um, what I meant was, it was great, but not that many people got to see it. You know, Sandhills is a private club. They do maybe 6,000 rounds a year. And a lot of them are members. So, you know, even though the buzz was, oh, this is one of the best golf courses in the world, there weren't a lot of people that had seen it or knew what it really was. And, you know, to top that off, so, a, you know, a new course like that, It'll win the best new course of the year, and it'll get like four pages in Golf Digest. And at, but after that, you're not going to hear about it again in Golf Digest unless it ranks really high in the top 100 courses a few years later, because it's private and their readers can't go there, and they don't spend a lot of time writing about. You know, it's funny now with all the video stuff they're doing all these photo tours of Pine Valley and Cypress Point and Terry Eady. And which they never would have done when they were just a print magazine because the readers can't go there. So why get them all salivating about how great a golf course this is? It's just going to piss them off at the end of the day. Um, 
you know, the contrast is, and the great thing about Mike Kaiser's business model was, if you build the same quality of golf course and it's public, the magazines fall over themselves to write about it. They don't just write about it being the best new course. They do like a 12-page spread every two years about Buddy's trip to Bandit. And they just keep doing it. I, you know, I said to somebody a few years ago, it's like winning the best new course every year. It gets that much press every year. Cape Kidnappers has been on so many. Cape Kidnappers, not even, so, you know, the other thing about Bandon is 40,000 people a year have played Pacific Dunes. You know, that thought about how different it was than Sandhills came to me like a year and a half after it opened. And it had been open for a year and a half. And Sandhills had been open for like eight or nine years. And I realized more people had been on Pacific Dunes already. Um, but then on top of that, you just get oodles and oodles more publicity. Even Cape Kidnappers, as remote as it is, it's like 8,000 miles away from where we're sitting today. Um, tons of people know about it because pictures of it have been in magazines around the world all the time because it's public. If it was private, it wouldn't be on the cover of every golf magazine every few months, but but it gets a ton more exposure because it's a resort. The other thing with Bandon is every time they open a new course, then the discussion becomes what's the best course at Bandon, and then Pacific Dunes gets recirculated with everything, and everybody's making the case. Everybody makes their case for different courses, and you know it just gets brought up again and again and over and over again. Yeah, you don't want to be the fifth best course at one of those places, <laughs> but 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 being in the conversation of being the best is is really good. <laughs> so you wrote detailed on Sheep Ranch, and it was interesting. It was interesting to read about how I, one to look at the map that you had of the eighteen hole routing and the map, and then look at what Bill and Ben built just recently and see how many similar holes there were. And, and two, the, you know, what Bill wrote about, he was mesmerized at Pacific Dunes about, he, he, in turn, you didn't see it at Sheep Ranch and he saw it there. Yeah. So I got to start, I've, I've known Bill Core for like 39 years since the first summer I worked for Mr. Die at Long Cove, um, I took off from the job. We, we basically had all the holes finished and they were just planting grass. And I took off from the job like two weeks before school started and made a big like circular road trip to get to Ithaca from Hilton Head by way of Texas and Oklahoma and Prairie Dunes and a bunch of courses that I hadn't seen yet. Um, and I stopped through... When I was in Texas, on my way from Houston to Dallas, I stopped through this place called Waterwood National that Pete's brother had actually designed in the late 70s. And it was a really rustic-looking golf course on Lake Livingston. It had one hole that was pretty famous, like a 220-yard par 3 over the corner of the lake that was really dramatic and really severe. Uh, it was a very difficult golf course. And, you know, I'd just seen a little publicity about it and knew it was sort of Pete's, but not really, but I wanted to check it out. And, uh, so I 
just drove in and asked somebody if I could get a golf cart and drove around and they were doing a little work to it. They were actually rebuilding the green and there was a guy out on a, on a box blade finishing the green. Uh, that was Rod Whitman. And then, you know, I, I talked to him for five minutes and then the superintendent came up, came and found me and I went to his office and we chatted for a while. That was Bill Corr. Um, and Bill had worked for the dies for a few years before that. And then in the late seventies, when the recession hit big time was just when they were finishing Waterwood national and, and, uh, a friend of his in the business said, you know, you should probably just park yourself there for a while. Cause there's not going to be a lot of new work. Um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be bad for you to learn about the maintenance side of golf courses and, and be the superintendent. Plus, honestly, this golf course is way too severe and it's going to need some fixing up. <laughs> so they're going to need somebody like you around for a while. Uh, so that's, so I've known Bill for a long time and I've known Ben for the same amount of time. They hadn't known each other that long. Um, but they've always been really good friends. And, you know, Bill and I had a conversation 39 years ago, like not cocky in any way, but we both knew what we wanted to do with the rest of our lives. And amazingly, somehow we got about to where we wanted to be. Yeah, so I asked Bill to write the foreword for the book. And partly because he's great at doing routings, partly because he doesn't write very much. And if, you know, if I can drag him into writing a little bit, so much the better. But, you know, but the interesting part was that I did want to write about the sheep ranch in, the, in my book. And he was working on this new version of it. And, you know, the only way it was, you know, the only way I was really comfortable with writing about the sheep ranch was to have Bill be included a little bit too. Um, and I asked him if he would give me the, the routing that he'd done for it, you know, like a year and a half ago. Uh, so, so I could include that at the end and how different that was from what, I, what Don and I had been trying to do the whole time. Um, you know, the sheep ranch was such an interesting project and I was so pleased that Sarah managed to dig out from some file drawer somewhere, um, a lot of our just not original attempts at trying to route it. And we had like 15 different routings for it <laughs> that, that I didn't, that I didn't print them all. I, you know, I was just like, you know, I, I tried to write about how many different versions we tried to do to come up with something that, that Mike and Phil Friedman would like. But, um, you know, you've got that really dramatic coastline, which, you know, one of the big differences between my routing and Bill's or between my routing at Pacific Dunes and David's is... You know, David abandoned dunes, tried to get as many greens close to the cliff as he could. And I tried to get as many holes playing along the cliffs as I could. And, you know, when you do, when you take up 450 yards of cliff for one hole, you know, everybody's going to think it's a great hole, but you've given up, you know, you could have gotten two or three greens and tees there if you were trying to do that. And I, you know, in general... I would rather go for the great golf hole, especially because at Pacific Dunes, you had so much great ground inland to work with. Those dunes were so spectacular. Um, but, um, you know, the Sheep Ranch wasn't that way. 
you know, once you got away from the cliff, it's, it's not sandy and it's not really dramatic. So I had, you know, I kept putting holes along the cliffs, but then every time I would turn away and go inland, it was like, oh, this isn't so exciting. And you could see when we'd take Mike and Phil and walk around things, as soon as, as soon as the routing would turn away from the cliffs, they'd be like disappointed and just want to know when we were going to get back from the cliffs. And at one point, like six months or a year into playing around with it, I said, you know, you could just like have holes along the cliffs and just play back and forth all day. <laughs> because at that time they were thinking it was going to be private, you know, so the whole concept of it going back. And so, the, you know, one of the things people don't understand, the, the, the reason it was the way it was, um, Phil Friedman was Mike's college roommate and his partner in Recycled Paper Greetings. And when Mike started looking at doing Band and Dunes, he asked Phil if Phil wanted to be a partner in Band and Two. And Phil said no. He thought Mike was crazy to be spending so much money out there on a golf project in the middle of nowhere. So when we started doing planning for Pacific Dunes and Bandon Dunes was getting ready to open, a lot of the trips, Phil would come out with Mike to Bandon. And Phil was just feeling like such a dope <laughs> for not having been part of Bandon Dunes. He loved playing the golf courses. He was like, he played the first loop of halls, the preview loop at Pacific Dunes more than anybody, I think. He just loved it. And and he was just like beating his head against the wall. Why didn't I participate in this? So the land for the sheep ranch came up for sale. Um, I don't know if there was an intermediate. At one point, a power company had owned it. And there were, there were some uh, wind turbines out there, like back in the 70s or early 80s. And it was so windy, it like destroyed the wind turbines. And they didn't work. So they took that all out. But I don't know if there'd been an intermediate owner or not. Anyway, the it was for sale and it was for a pretty good chunk of money for for uh you know, two hundred acres on the Oregon coast in the middle of nowhere. And you know, it was right next to Bandon and right where you could see it. And and Mike was like, Well, I gotta buy it to protect the resort from somebody building a big ugly hotel there or or cashing in off what we've done and building another golf course there separate but it was a chunk of money too and and you know phil raised his hand and said i'll go have these with you and mike was like okay <laughs> that'll save me some money so so it was a separate deal from the resort a separate ownership and so they tried to come up with a business model that wasn't like directly tied to the resort. And the first idea was, well, let's make it private. And, you know, and, you know, I thought it would have been neat as a private course to, you know, you like get some members, build a little clubhouse with some lodging. Sure. They go play at the resort during the day and then they come up there at the end of the day and play till dark, basically on their own little golf course without a lot of other people around. I thought that would have worked. Um, and it might have worked, but somewhere during the process of routing as we were starting construction, um, 
I don't think Mike Kaiser ever anticipated at that point what a hero he was going to be in the golf world for building Bandon Dunes and it being all public. But that was that was starting to be the story about the resort. And Mike all of a sudden realized that if he if he did this private thing right next to the resort, he would kill that. <laughs> and he didn't want to do that. So he got really cold feet about the business model and kind of backed off and didn't really want to didn't really want to build anything. Um, not having any idea what he would do with it. But Phil, who'd spent half the money to build it, and you know, he really wanted to go ahead. So he asked us if we could go ahead and, you know, what could we do for a limited amount of money? Um, and and I said, well, you know, really the big cost of this whole deal is irrigation. You know, if you put in fairway irrigation, you know, that's fairway ir- irrigation. The irrigation system was literally 40% of the cost of building Pacific Dunes. So without that, you know, if you're just building greens and a few bunkers and we didn't even build, we built about three bunkers because it was not sandy soil and we figured the sand would all blow away. We just built a couple of bunkers to see if they would hold up at all. Um, and Phil said, okay, let's we'll just build some greens and, you know, we'll just, we'll just seed the whole place. And, you know, you get enough rain there in the winter, you get a catch of grass. Um, but it just goes you know, it goes super dormant in the summer. They would shut it down for a while in the summers because it would just get so toasty you didn't want it to catch fire. Um, But it just had a a loop of irrigation around the greens and nothing else. So it was really like what you'd see in New Zealand or rural Scotland or somewhere as far as the maintenance level of it. Um, And, but, but because Mike had kind of like disavowed it, there was this always this awkward relationship between the resort and and the sheep ranch. Like, you know, you know, we got to make sure that no staff from the resort is doing any work up there, and they're not using equipment from up there. So the sheep ranch only had a f- couple used mowers. Basically, <laughs> was what they maintained the golf course with. Um, I mean, it was basically a two man operation for years, um, and you know. Some people didn't get it. It's like, why are the golf courses down there so perfect? And this is kind of raggedy. And some people just loved it that way because it was so different. And I think that's an important historical anecdote that everybody, obviously, it, it's what happens when when new courses open. Magazines write about how it's the best course here. You know, no matter what, it's always that's always going to be the com- conversation. But it's important to remember that what you did at the sheep ranch was a drastically different concept and wasn't it's not like it was a fail it was a success in a different way than what bill and ben just completed there is it was a commercial golf course and yours wasn't a commercial golf course built for resort play you know it it was a it was a concept and and in many ways the idea of low-cost construction low-cost maintenance with a golf course that made people like imaginations run wild is, is a smashing success and, and not some, not an idea of golf that should be abandoned necessarily. No. And I'm not, I mean, I want to be really careful. First of all, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen Bill and Ben's course yet, but, um, but I can, 
I've got a pretty good idea what it's like. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the ground. Uh, you know, I've seen the routing plan. I think the routing plan is really good. They did some things that Don and I never thought of that made, I mean, basically they fit 18 holes on about 120 acres and made it really cool. You know, it's got to be really close together and it's got to be kind of all mode tight for that to work. But, um, it looks really cool and I'm, I'm excited to play it. So I'm not saying what we did was better. It's, it was completely different for a completely different concept and, and client and everything else. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, so the sheep branch was kind of in limbo for, you know, we, we, you know, it was done in 2003 and it sat there for 15 years with like, people occasionally playing it and not really understanding what was going on. Um, you know, in when, when Mike and I started talking about old McDonald. And really not when we started talking about it, but just when we just when we agreed that I would do old McDonald, right as I started to shake his hand about it, he said, You realize that if I have you do old McDonald, when whenever I do something with the sheep ranch, I'll probably have somebody else do it. And I like hesitated for about a half a second. You know, because at that time, you know, Mike and Phil were at an impasse over what to do with it. And I was like, whatever is going to happen with the sheep ranch is way down the road. And, you know, we could use this old McDonald job right now. So I didn't think very hard about that. Um, but, it, but I did it kind of with sadness, too, because I really I did love the concept of the sheep ranch. And, it, you know, I knew it was going to go away someday and they would do something real with it. And it was kind of a bummer that that we didn't get to work on it again when the time came but by the same token you know I was kind of like that would have been hard for me to do um and and as I say in the book which I which I'd never said anywhere else and I could not say to Mike and Phil in 2001 2002 when we were doing planning you know I was always concerned about whether the sheep ranch could be as good as Pacific Dunes. I just finished Pacific Dunes and I really thought it was really good. And I, and I thought it was so good because the, the inland part of the property was so cool and there were so many good holes there. And I couldn't see how the sheep ranch could really compete with that because it didn't, once you got inland, it wasn't nearly as exciting. Um, you know, if you'd let me, you know, even when we built old McDonald, if you if you'd said then, okay, go back and look at the sheep ranch again now, I might have had a different perspective on it, and I might have been able to see some of the things that Bill did, but you know, but at the, but that wasn't on the table then. Um, so, you know, it needed that space for me at least between Pacific Dunes and doing the sheep ranch in order to do it, you know, and I, you know, I'm the first, you know, Mike is a big believer in hiring different architects to do each golf course. And, you know, that, 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 that helps promote them. And he also thinks, and I think he's dead wrong about this, but he also really believes that when he hires Bill Core to do the sheep ranch, Bill is trying to top Pacific dunes or that, you know, when, 
when we, you know, when one of us follows the other, we're trying to do a better golf course than the other guy. And that's what motivates us. And I, I swear that's not true for me. And I really doubt it's true for Bill Core. You know, both of us are looking at like, this is a beautiful piece of land. We got to make the most out of this we can. You know, we're, we're comparing it to everything we've done in our own career. We're, you know, we're comparing it to all the courses we really admire. You know, it doesn't really matter to us very much that, oh, Tom built a course right over there. I got to make sure it's better than that. There's no way. But, but Mike believes that. You know, so Mike is going to hire David Kidd to do the next course, and I'm going to do the third course at Sand Valley. Whatever. You know, it's, it's good to be one of the guys in that loop, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, but I don't, you know, I don't believe that having a different architect for every golf course is going to make the thing better, that it's going to get you really more publicity. And, you know, and my, my trump card for that is Old McDonald. I did build two golf courses right next to each other in Bandon and different people like different ones better but they're both really highly regarded um, so you can do it but but you do need some time in there yeah. I, I don't think you I don't I think it would be really hard to do three golf courses in the space of five years and have them all turn out that good and I think it's true too at Bandon with Bill and Ben at Bandon Trails and Sheep Ranch, where the they and they had a lot of time in between the two. Sure. But yep. certain, I've talked to some people that are like Sheep Ranches. So I mean, and what's not to like about Sheep Ranch? You stare at the ocean the whole day, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but Bandon Trails has this, you know, unique uh, uh, followers that love it, and it, you know. It's a wildly different golf course, but it's another, you know, with your two courses there and Bill and Ben's, it kind of proves that, you know, you can do multiple courses at the same spot yep. and have them turn out different and as well thought of. Um, something with, with Pacific Dunes that you talked about was the how much you appreciate being able to route a golf course that had similar characteristics to that of like a Cypress where you, it takes you out to the ocean, brings you back in and brings you back out to the ocean. And, you know, it might not have been the case until they found that extra land that he had. And, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the story of when you guys stumbled upon the 13th. Okay. So, so the book has three routings for Pacific Dunes. And the first one is something that I never even showed Mr. Kaiser. I'd, I'd had a topo map of it for six months or a year before I went out to look at it, to look at the ground. Because, um, well, I'd, I'd actually, I'd, I'd met Mr. Kaiser in like 1995. So way before the first golf course existed. David Kidd was already working on his plan for the first golf course at that time. And instead of, instead of trying to like elbow him out of the way, I just figured, well, you know, Mike's talking about doing two golf courses. Hopefully I'll get a chance to do the second one. So, so I just, you know, I just spent some time with Mike. We played golf a couple of times when I actually went on a golf trip to Ireland together, um, got to know him a bit. He saw a couple of my other golf courses. Um, and as, you know, as Bandon Dunes was being built, um, 
he acquired the land for Pacific Dunes, which a lawyer had owned. And the lawyer went into personal bankruptcy and that piece of land just fell into Mike's lap. Um, and so Mike sent me topo of that land. But we both agreed that it probably wasn't right to go out there and start working on the planning while David was still working on his golf course. And, you know, and, you know, having another architect around while David was still, you know, making decisions and changing stuff just wasn't kosher. So, so I didn't, so I had the map for quite a while to just play around and try to find golf holes, but I didn't go to look at the site until David's course was all done and a month or two away from opening. Um, and Mike had told me that when he got the land for David, when he got the land for Pacific Dunes, he let David build a couple of holes into the corner of it along the coast. But he didn't really say how much. And, you know, I'd seen a picture of the sixth hole at Bandon Dunes. So I could kind of see where that was on my map and thought, okay, he came into there and then he probably just went straight back out. Um, so... So I routed holes pretty close to there. And as it turned out, this map that I took with me to Bandon Dunes the first time, um, you know, I had golf holes all over where David's seventh and eighth holes were. I didn't know they were there. So my routing just flat did not work from the moment I set foot on the site. The, the circulation of it didn't work at all. And I was like, so I never showed it to Mike. I was just like, crap, now I'm back to square one. <laughs> Um, there were four holes on that map that are pretty close to four holes at Pacific Dunes today. But that's the extent of what, you know, there were some other holes that would have been good holes that didn't fit together very well. And there were some, but there were some, there were a lot of things that, that we saw walk in the ground that we were like, boy, that's cool. And I, you know, and I hadn't picked up on the seventh green site all the little jiggly contours that are the seventh green on the topo map. When I looked at the topo map, as soon as we walked by it, I was like, let's build a green there. <laughs> it's amazing. Green site, amazing fairway too. Yeah. Like that's just such a beautiful hole. And one of the nice things about the book is, you know, not for very many of my early courses because the pictures were slides and they were 30 years old and they're not well sorted out. But for Pacific Dunes, we have a bunch of pictures from before when, you know, seeing that green site when it was brand new or you asked about the 13th hole, which I'll get to in a minute. You know, I have a, the, the, one of the pictures in the book is me standing on the 13th tee and Jim Urbina standing in the landing area for the fairway. The first time we saw it. Um, so, so anyway, I'm trying to figure out how to rework my routing minus the land for six, seven, and eight abandoned dunes. And, you know, I, I was out there with Jim for, I think, for like five days. And, uh, you know, we played abandoned dunes a couple of times with Mike and Phil and some other people. And, it, but we, you know, we were spending a lot of time walking the site, the parts that we could walk, because a lot of it was still covered with gorse, and then coming back and working on the maps. And so, you know, we found like the 
sites for the first hole and the second hole and the and the seventh green and the eighth and part of the 18th because those weren't under gorse and you could walk them pretty easily. But the north side of it was almost, you know, once you dropped off 3T onto that flatter plane, that was all eight-foot high gorse. You really couldn't walk through it at all. Um, so we just, you could see the dunes on the far side and we had a topo map and it's like, okay, it's 500 yards to there so we could play a hole here. Um, but it was still hard to get a feel for and Mike was feeling nervous about it. But, you know, I said to him after like three days, you know, I really like this, but, you know, that that little corner there that we gave up, um, you know, that means I'm going to wind up with three or four holes inland away from the water that I just, I don't think they're going to be as good. That's like the best thing you can say to Mike Kaiser, right? If you want to get more waterfront land. Yeah. <laughs> Threaten yeah, inland holes. <laughs> Same process at Terry Eady, actually. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is those those three holes on the on the the second plan that or the I guess it was on the first plan, that area that I was thinking of is part of old McDonald now. <laughs> so it's like we could we could actually build good golf holes there, but it wasn't as good as being along the coast. And, you know, so I said to Mike, I, you know. I'm just not sure what I'm going to do with the, with holes like inland on that flatter bit of terrain. I, I think I'm going to have to like build some dunes and create something there because it's just not as dramatic as everything else. And Mike said, well, actually, we own the property north of this too. So, you know, why don't you go look over there? <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, like I said, you know, that, that big plane from the third tee at Pacific Dunes and kind of the 12th to pretty close to his fence line um, was just all gorse and you couldn't walk through it. So Jim and I drove around to the beach, actually where, where you drive into the sheep, where you could drive into the sheep ranch and hike back up along the dunes to get in. Because there was, you know, it was sandy along the dunes, and there was a there was a little bit of a trail, and it wasn't solid course. So we came in, and we we wound up where kind of where fourteen T is now, and that was our first view of thirteen. It was from up there, like wow, it looks pretty dramatic going back there toward the T, and then you know looked the other way, and I was like, holy crap, you know, this just. You know, there's just this giant dune coming down and just enough space for a green site between that and the water. And really a green site just sitting there. I mean, it was there. And so we walked down in there and I said, you know, go to, we didn't have a map for this yet. So I was like, you stay here. Let me go back to where a T would be so I can laser it and see how far it is. And it was just perfect. You know, it was just the right distance for for the big tee shot and then a pretty tough second shot up uphill to the green site. And I did, I took a picture of Jim in his red jacket. So he really stands out and that wound up in the book. Uh, but you know, we, we immediately went right back around to the resort and said to Mike, yeah, there's a great hole there. You should come see it. And I don't think he'd ever seen it. He might have for all I know, but, but he was excited when he saw what we were pointing at and then you know we showed it to him from 14 and he said 
could the next hall be like a par three up up in the dunes here where so you're still looking at the ocean instead of like you know teeing off and playing down into the land where old mcdonald is and not seeing the ocean at all because mike at that point was still his idea of how great the golf course was going to be was how many holes were you looking at the ocean from he had a count in his head the whole time um and i said sure you know we'll just you know, we'll have to like do some earthwork on the dune over there to get, build 14. And we actually had to do more work to build that hole than most of them. Um, but, you know, that was basically Mike's idea for a hole there. Was that fairway contour, that kind of that little hogs back right in the middle of 13 fairway all just there? Or was that, did you move some stuff to make that? It was really all just there. The only thing we had to do, because it, you know, it, the, the fairway was uh, there was there was gorse growing on it, but it was only like ankle high because it was basically sitting right on top of sandstone. There was hardly any soil there, and you know it came up just perfect where it didn't quite cover the green. Um, but you know when we were we had to sand cap that hole and four and twelve with about three feet of sand. And when we did that, you know, the, the fairway was going to come up so much relative to the green that, that it wasn't going to, the visual wasn't going to be so good. So we had to like knock the fairway down a little bit. So the sand cap didn't ruin, ruin the view, but it looks what, what's there now looks almost exactly the same as what was there at the start. Yeah. That, that picture in the book is like stunning. You know, you see that it's, it's, uh, it's like, whoa, that's exactly what's there. <laughs> 